G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. In changing of the water into wine, Jesus assures us that He alone can change our life. In healing the sick, Jesus defeats the crippling disabilities in our life. In feeding of the multitude, Jesus demonstrating His inexhaustible resources in the sight of the barrenness of ours. In walking on the water, He is contrasting our helplessness in the face of the awesome force of nature as we've been experiencing lately and His mastery over it. Each miracle has a significance and a meaning. Welcome to Leading the Way, the international Bible teaching ministry of Atlanta pastor and author, Dr. Michael Youssef. Have you wondered what God the Father is really like? Well, in today's Leading the Way episode you'll see how Jesus revealed the heart of the Father through His ministry of teaching and miracles, walking the dusty paths of Israel. If you miss any portion of this episode of Leading the Way, remember you can catch up by visiting our audio archives at ltw.org. Click the Listen link to get started. Here now to begin his encouraging series, Seven Signs in John's Gospel, Dr. Michael Youssef. The word miracle is a word that is being used and abused in our modern time, that in some circles it came to define everything and all things, and in other circles it uh, became to be identified with magic and trickery and underhandedness, and still in yet other circles it is viewed with skepticism and with cynicism and disbelief. Yet the scripture is very clear that the definition of a miracle is when God intervenes in the natural order with His supernatural power and changes things. The Lord Jesus Christ demonstrated this again and again. As God incarnate, as God in human flesh, He demonstrated His power and His miracles were foolproof. They were instantaneous. They had 100% success. None of that business, well, it's your problem, you don't have enough faith, it's got nothing to do with me. When Jesus performed the miracle, He performed the miracle. And when Jesus performs a miracle, He performs a miracle. Foolproof, instantaneous, with 100% success. Miracles were Jesus' demonstration of His power over nature. It was his demonstration of his power over demons. It was demonstrating his power over death, over disease, and over whatever hamper us in this life. Miracles were Jesus' demonstration of his amazing and astonishing power and the power of that of his daddy. But John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, gives us another word for miracle. He uses the Greek word simeon. The word means a sign, translated into sign. Some of the Bible translations, modern translations you have, bring that out. It's a sign rather than a word miracle. For as far as John was concerned, Jesus' miracle 
We're a definite sign. We're a clear indication of who He is. As far as John was concerned, Jesus' miracles were a sign that He is the Messiah. As far as John was concerned, Jesus' miracles were a sign that He is the divine Son of God. And He tells us over and over again, He said, The disciples saw and they believed. He said, the crowd looked with amazement and they believed. He said in his gospel, he said, these signs were given to you so that you may believe. So miracles are not for shows, a side show. It is not for people to come and belong to a certain person who performs these magical things. No. They have one purpose in them and that is that the hard hearts would turn to Jesus Christ and believe. That is the purpose of miracles. John records in his gospel eight altogether of these signs, these simeons. Seven before the resurrection and one after the resurrection. Each of these seven signs provide us with deep spiritual truths. They show us our inadequacy and Jesus' all-sufficiency. They show us our inability to cope and God's provision in Jesus Christ. In changing of the water into wine, Jesus assures us that He alone can change our life. In healing the sick, Jesus defeats the crippling deficiencies and disabilities in our life. In healing and feeding of the multitude, Jesus demonstrating His inexhaustible resources in the sight of the barrenness of ours. In walking on the water... He is contrasting our helplessness in the face of the awesome force of nature as we've been experiencing lately and his mastery over it. In the opening of the eyes of the blind man, he revealed our natural blindness and that he is the light of the world. In the raising of the dead, we see our total helplessness before death and Jesus' victory and defeat of it and victory over it. Each miracle has a significance and a meaning. Each miracle intended to point us to God and God's provision in Jesus Christ. Each miracle was to the glory of God and not for selfish reason. It is to the majesty of God and not just for our own fulfillment of our own needs. For every time you see a miracle, you notice the purpose of it in the end of that miracle. In this one... In John chapter 2, he said, the disciples saw and they believed. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. I think the story is familiar to most of us, I hope. Jesus had just begun his public ministry. About three days into the beginning of his public ministry, he got invited to this wedding. And uh, presumably the wedding, somebody is related to Mary, his mother. Some traditions say that... Mary was the sister of the groom's mother. And if that is the case, it really explains why Mary was so deeply concerned about saving face and shame and embarrassment. I'm going to explain in a minute of this poor family for not being able to provide for their son's wedding. You've got to understand the ancient Middle Eastern mind. In ancient Middle East, there was a strong element of reciprocity in weddings. In fact, if you give your cousin Bill a gift at his wedding worth $100, you'll be absolutely sure when cousin Joe, cousin Bill is going to give him a gift worth at least $100, if not more. Tangled with legalism. 
Trust me, you don't want it. <laughs> I know this is so foreign to our world. But back then, it would not be unusual that certain legal action would be taken against the groom and his father by the father of the bride. If the groom and, the, and his father did not provide adequately for the festivities of the wedding, he could be sued by the father of the bride. Some of you who are fathers of daughters wish we lived in those days. <laughs> You've already gone bankrupt putting a wedding together. But that was the job of the groom back then. You have to understand the Jewish wedding to understand the intensity of that situation. It wasn't just a nice thing that Jesus did. This is, goes far deeper than this, even in that context. Before a marriage can take place, a betrothal ceremony has to take place. And that betrothal ceremony is a lot more than just an engagement party or an announcement party. This was a contractual and a solemn pledging of the couple to each other. The betrothal ceremony was binding. And to break it, it would be equivalent to divorce proceedings today. <laughs> Not today, I mean, uh, some time ago. Today is so easy. At the conclusion of this betrothal period, which <laughs> is negotiated between the parents, the marriage takes place. Normally the wedding would take place on a Wednesday night if the bride is virgin, and on a Thursday night if she's a widow. And on the wedding night, the bridegroom and his male friend go out of his house in a procession to the bride's house. This happened at night, and therefore it is a very impressive torchlight procession. And as they come, the bridegroom comes to the bride's house and he knocks on the door, and the father opens the door, he makes certain promises and solemn promises to the father of the bride. I like this one. And then, when the father gives him to her, the bride and his groom walk back in this magnificent torchlight procession to the house of the groom where the wedding is taking place, where all the wedding festivities are happening in the groom's house, and ultimately that's where the bride is going to live. Sometime before the end of this particular wedding. Now, the wedding feast was not just a dinner and a banquet and a goodbye, I can't wait for you to go home. No. <laughs> the wedding festivities can take up to one week, and for some people it was longer. <laughs> night after night, celebrate the wedding. Celebrate that in a feast for seven days. And in other occasions, goes for two weeks. Sometime in the middle of the week, we don't know when. Day two, day three, day four, we don't know when. Sometime in the middle of that festivities, the wine ran out. Running out of beverage in the middle of your festivities means that you are too poor to provide adequately for your wedding festivities. And remember, this is not just an incident that's going to take place and be forgotten. This was going to cause this family embarrassment and shame. It's going to put a scar on that family in the midst of that community until they die. <laughs> Everybody would be walking there and for probably 30, 40 years and said, ah, this is the house of so-and-so who could not provide for their son's wedding. That's how it was. You understand Mary's intensity and you understand the significance of this. And it could be not only a scar, not only shame for the rest of that generation, 
they could have been sued by the father of the bride and a cause of embarrassment. Now in our culture, if something like this would happen and you are there, some of you probably will get in the car and they talk about how cheap the host was and then you forget it. Next day, it's forgotten. Not so in this culture. It's a lot more serious than this. This was his very first miracle, and John tells us so. But Mary knew. Mary knew who he was. Mary knew what the angel told her before his birth. Mary knew that she had conceived him while she was still a virgin. Mary knew that he was for 30 years as growing up. She knew that he is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. So she asks if he would supernaturally intervene and save the whole generation of that family, the scar and the embarrassment and the shame. And by the way, in verse 4, in some translation it says, woman, it doesn't mean rudeness here. It is a term of endearment. It's not rudeness. As we would say in the South, ma'am. So Mary, not taking this as a rebuke, she asks the servants, she said, you do whatever he tells you to do. (laughs) She has such confidence. She has such trust that she knew he wouldn't let her down. Do you have confidence in Jesus that he will never let you down? He will never let you down. He said, I'll never forsake you. I'll never leave you. So Mary orders the servants, and the servants come with these big jars that are left in every Jewish home, mostly used for water, for purification, for washing before eating, for Jewish purification. These six jars, average of 20 gallons in each, to fill them with water. When Jesus asked them to fill them with water, they filled them to the brim, and there Jesus changed the water into wine. And of course, to the astonishment of the Master of Ceremonies, He's never tasted anything this good. So he goes to the groom who presumably was so thankful that the day was saved and and his life was saved and was glad that this had happened. That is the miracle in itself. But on a deeper level, this miracle or the sign, as John would call it here, bring joy into life that is full of boredom. It is a sign that Jesus can bring joy into the life that is empty. It is a sign that Jesus can, regardless of how far you have gone down, can pull you back again. No matter how much you have run out of the water of life, He can restore the wine of life. The plea here that they have no wine goes much deeper than the need for the beverage for these folks to save face and embarrassment. It is a cry of every joyless heart who is without Christ. Because Christ alone can restore order. And that's my first point. Apart from Christ, I don't care how rich a person is, how powerful he or she may be, how socially connected they may be. Without Jesus Christ, the wine of life will run out. Ernest Hemingway may have seemed to have had everything. But his life was empty, and he took away his life. Marilyn Monroe seemed to be glamorous and famous and rich, and everything seemed to be going her way. But her life was empty. The wine of life has run out. 
and she took her own life. There are so many who seem to have everything in life, and you think they've got it all. But in reality, without Jesus Christ, the wine of life has run out, and they are empty. Or if they have any water left, it is bitter water. Not only do many non-Christians may feel that the wine of life has run out, but there are countless believers who find their Christian life to be a drudgery. To them, their worship has become boring. Bible study is nothing more than just storing up some dry biblical facts and doctrinal concepts. Their faith is burdensome. They are living in legalism with all its false demands. Their prayer life has become dutiful instead of being joyful and exciting. Their Christian life has long lost its joy. Their wine has turned into water. Their wine has run out. The wine often runs out early in life. Consider these facts. Some 6,000 American high schoolers take their life every year. Two million more try to kill themselves. Another six million seriously consider it. Many men and women are surrendering to their midlife crisis. And they wonder aloud, is life worth living? Only the Lord Jesus Christ and through the Lord Jesus Christ who can exchange the water of life into the wine of his joy. Only in the Lord Jesus Christ, because he and he alone can turn the drudgery, the grief, the bitterness, the failure, the bondage of life into the sweet beverage of true happiness. In reality, the time comes to all of us when we run out of wine. The drudgery of cleaning house, buying groceries, paying bills, changing diapers, getting meals ready, endless business meetings. Add to this monotony of life, the disappointments in life, the hurts in life, the grief in life along the way. And then you add them up together, and folks are like Mary saying, we ran out of wine. But like Mary, we must not try to run away from the situation. But with confidence, with assurance, turn to the one who can turn your stumbling blocks into stepping stones. With confidence and assurance, turn to the one who can turn the vengeance and can turn the bitterness and can turn the anger into the sweet beverage of comfort and assurance and contentment. Turn to the one who can turn the hatred that is seething and the defeat into victory and love. Turn to the one who can turn your hurt and your disappointment into his divine appointments. Jesus restores order, but secondly, Jesus reverses nature. According to the custom of the day, of course, what happened at that wedding was the reverse of what they naturally do. They normally keep the inferior wine, the cheap wine, The stuff we probably had instead of three parts water, one part alcohol, maybe five parts water, one part alcohol. They always reserved that to later on in the festivities. After several days, everybody around talking said, what a generous people these guys are. And later on, they bring the bad wine. Maybe day three, day four into the festivities. But the master of ceremonies thought that the groom has reversed the natural order. He thought that he kept the good wine all the way to the end. He thought he was stupid. Please listen, because this is the way Satan and his demons work. And they try to do that in your life and in mine. 
They try to do that with everybody. They serve their best first and their worst later. The young drinker enjoys the liquor in the early years of his or her life, but does not realize that the time will come when it will bite you like a snake. Addiction can turn a man or a woman of distinction into a derelict in the gutter. Illicit sex may feel good in a moment of passion, but the result of unwanted pregnancy, unwedded motherhood, the temptation of abortion, the contraction of AIDS, and all of that often follow. When Satan turns good into bad, Jesus turns the bad into good. That's our God. He reverses the natural order of Satan. The pleasure of sin may be enjoyed for a season, but then comes the wages of sin. I'm getting excited about what I'm going to say. (laughs) Jesus works the opposite way. He's a great God. He reverses it. He reverses that world's natural order. He may allow you to enter into the wilderness, but make no mistake about it. He, Jesus, will always take you to the promised land. Jesus may permit a cross in your life, but he always will order resurrection in your life. Sorrow may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning. This miracle reminds us of something else. It reminds us of another wedding that's going to take place. And when that wedding takes place, Jesus is not going to be a guest. (laughs) He's going to be the bridegroom. And we're going to be the bride. In His presence will be fullness of joy and His right hand, the pleasures forevermore. As I bring those words to conclusion, I want to tell you, let all who thirst, let all who run out of the wine of life, Let all who are seeking, let all who are willing to trust Him, let all who are willing to obey Him be invited today. Come. Jesus not only restores order, He reverses nature. Jesus could have just created wine like that. I mean, He could have done it, could He not, from empty jars? But He didn't do it that way. I don't know why God does this. I don't know why the Lord Jesus does that. But the Bible teaches us again and again that often God's miracles take place after obedience. That obedience has to come first, then the miracle. Are you praying for a miracle in your life? Has God been speaking to you about an area in your life which you're not obedient? When you pray for a miracle, do you hear the voice of God saying, Fill the jars with water first. Do what I'm asking you to do first. For it is right after your obedience that I will come and change the water that you put in those jars by obeying me into wine. Dr. Michael Youssef, with encouragement to live in obedience and watch God accomplish miracles in your life. Thanks for joining listeners worldwide for Leading the Way. Well, if your family's anything like mine, whoever gets to the mailbox first is usually excited because there's always a stack of items, but enthusiasm often changes to irritation when most of the stack ends up being tossed into the nearest bin. But everyone in our family is excited when the monthly copy of my journal arrives. 
It's a magazine from Leading the Way, speaking to issues families face today. Short, poignant content about life, work, family, lives being changed through Jesus, giving, and of course, how to be light in a dark world. The title again, My Journal. And you can start your free trial subscription when you call 1-300-133-589 or click over to ltw.org, ltw.org. Well, that music means our time together is over for today. This program is furnished by Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef. Connect further via television, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter and all of the social media networks. taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.